You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week, we're hearing from Discipleship Director Johnny Bell. We've been in a series recently called Encounters with Jesus, where we've been looking at moments in the Gospels, in the life of Jesus, where he encounters regular, everyday folk, and he does something beautiful in their lives. And as we look at these stories, we get to know the person of Jesus and the God that sent him. So this morning, I'm continuing in that. But before I start, as I was praying through the sermon, I felt like God wanted me to say who this sermon is for. Now, partly it's for everybody. I hope there's something in here for every single person listening. But specifically, I think there's a target audience that God is looking to hit. And I'm going to borrow the words of Brendan Manning to say it. He's a much better writer than I. He says, this is for the bedraggled, beat up, and burnt out. This is for the sorely burdened who are still shifting the heavy suitcase from one hand to the other. This is for the wobbly and weak need who know they don't have it all together. This is for inconsistent, unsteady disciples whose cheese is falling off their cracker. I told you, he's a better, he's a writer, man. This is for poor, weak men and women who feel they have hereditary faults and limited talents. This is for earthen vessels who shuffle along on feet of clay. This is for the bent and the bruised who feel that their lives are a grave disappointment to God. This is for myself and anyone else who has grown weary and discouraged along the way. With that said, let's go to a wedding together. John chapter 2 verse 1 tells us about Jesus at a wedding. Says on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and revealed his glory. Beginnings are important. For any creatives here, you know how important the first reveal to the audience is. The opening shot of a movie, the first page of a book, the first bite of a tasting menu at a fine dining restaurant. 
The beginning sets the tone by which the entire rest of the body of work can be interpreted. Think of the opening shot in Star Wars, A New Hope. A vast sky full of stars, an eerie quiet after the bombastic opening crawl, and the camera pans down as a small spacecraft zooms into shot from overhead and continues on toward an invisible horizon. Immediately followed by a giant starship that begins with a pointed tip piercing the frame and then widens and widens until this ominous vessel fills the screen seemingly casting a shadow over the whole of space. The bombastic score returns, but this time menacing in nature. Apparently, in this story, the bad guys are impressive, powerful, and in a hurry. Or perhaps the opening shot of one of my favorite films, Whiplash. In a quick snap, as if a light has been turned on, the screen goes from black to a shot down a long, dark hallway to a single drummer sitting at a drum set. It is night, it is quiet, it is empty, and the camera begins to track in on a lonely drummer drumming alone. And after a long, slow creep in on our isolated musician, the camera quickly cuts to a reverse shot, interrupted by a stoic figure, standing and watching in silence, their face hidden in the darkness. Or maybe if movies aren't for you, the opening page of Moby Dick, which opens iconically with the phrase, Call me Ishmael. And it goes on, some years ago, mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse and nothing of particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail a little and see the watery part of the world. Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, Whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, then I account, I account it high time to get to sea as soon as I can. Beginnings are important. And so, if we are going to understand who Jesus is, what he is like, it is good to look at the beginning. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus' ministry starts in chapter 2 with a wedding. And this is a strange enough story on its own, but the final sentence that John includes really ramps up the intrigue when he says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and revealed his glory. Jesus turning water into wine is a fairly well-known story. The idiom of turning water into wine has been a staple in society for decades, if not centuries. But this isn't just a miracle about God can make free booze. Although, let's be honest, that would be fairly radical in and of itself. John, the author here, makes sure to let us know this is a sign, and not just any sign, but the first sign. It is a signifier of something else a signpost to everything that is to come. It is the teaser trailer, the first announcement. It's a save the date arriving in the mail, letting you know that something exciting is coming. 
So what is it all about? Why on earth would Jesus have that his first miraculous thing he does, the first sign he ever reveals, be a supernatural conjuring of wine at a wedding? Because, like a lot of what Jesus did, this is actually about that. And so this sign at this wedding might just be about that which we desire to know most. Who is God and what does he think about me? So what is Jesus saying? What's he doing? What's he revealing about himself, about God and about his work that he absolutely needs us to know? Which is funny because at first glance, this miracle feels very inessential, especially as far as miracles go. No one's raised from the dead. No one is healed, no lives are saved, no blind eyes open, no demons cast out, no lepers cleansed. Half the miracle takes place in secret, no one even knows it's happened. This seems like the miraculous equivalent of a frat boy showing up late to a party that's dying out with a keg in the back of his truck yelling, let's get this party started. At best, modern interpretation seems to be, hey, God can make something out of nothing. That's how the idiom goes, right? Turning water into wine becomes the miracle that lets people know that God can do miracles. It's the miracle that insists upon itself. Now, I don't think that that interpretation is untrue because God can turn nothing into something. God can work miracles when it seems like there's no way. He can figuratively and literally turn water into wine, but there is so much more that Jesus is doing. We must remember that Jesus is the manifestation of God's will on earth. Jesus is the revelation of what God has always been like that we have not always known. So you better believe that when Jesus, after waiting 30 years of living on earth as a regular working class laborer, finally reveals himself and reveals himself to be God and therefore reveals God through his first sign, then that sign has something massively important to say, would you agree? So what is Jesus revealing about himself, about God, and how he thinks about us? To figure that out, we're going to look at the three main elements at play in this story. A wedding, water jars, and wine. And conveniently, it's all W's. The wedding. First, we must look at the context that the sign takes place. In the ancient Middle East, a wedding was not simply the joining of two people in romantic love, as beautiful as that is, is the joining of two people groups, two families becoming one. It was the beginning of something new and the passing away of something old for an entire community. Where two separate communities existed, one will now exist. In biblical terms, this is called a covenant, the joining of two entities to partake in a new reality moving forward. When Jesus shows up on the scene and declares his presence and reveals himself at a wedding, he is declaring that he has come to start a new covenant between God and his people, a new marriage between heaven and earth, a union between divinity and humanity, a melding between the spiritual and the physical, a collision of the holy and the broken. Jesus is declaring that he is here to usher in a new and final era of the relationship between God and mankind. Jesus is doing a new thing. 
establishing a new covenant, making a new union between us and God. This is literally a save the date for a future wedding happening at a wedding. Jesus is saying a wedding is on the way. How can I confidently say this? Because there's another passage in Scripture that talks about a wedding between God and his people, which explicitly references the need for the old to pass away and the new to come. The very end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21, John, the author, writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Here we get a full description of the kingdom of God, what it's like and what God's heart is for his people. We get to see how Jesus at this wedding in Cana is giving a signpost of what is to come. God will be with his people. He will dwell with them just as Jesus has come to earth and is dwelling with the people at this wedding. There will be no disconnect, no gap, no gap in closeness or intimacy. There'll be no barrier to community. God will not be elsewhere. He will be here. And what happens when God is here? He comforts, heals, restores, he wipes tears from eyes. He turns a people who used to mourn and experience pain into a people that are comforted and experience joy. This is the fullness of God's heart for us displayed by Jesus. This is the new thing that God wants to do, and apparently it is starting now, and it is starting with this man named Jesus. So Jesus is doing something new. But what are the water jars about? We got the wedding, the context, something new is happening. What about the old thing? Water jars. So they'd run out of wine at this wedding, right? There's no wine left, but the wedding's not over. Problem. Jesus makes a choice to turn water into wine. That's his solution to this problem. He just needs water vessels to fill with water. And any vessels will do, right? Like anything that can hold water, that'll do. Just needs something to hold water, water in it, he'll do the rest. John informs us that there were six water vessels for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. So Jesus selects these as the vessel of choice for his miracle. Because where else would he put the water? This, he's looking for water vessels, there's water vessels, done. It's his only option, right? Well, not really. Here's the thing. Wine wasn't served out of disposable wine bottles or cardboard boxes in ancient Jerusalem. They were served out of these large, reusable stone jugs. I have a picture. This is what they served wine out of in ancient Jerusalem. They're big. They held a lot of wine. They had like an indented cupped bottom that you could put your hand under and great big handles and pour. I mean, being a server must have been an absolute nightmare, but you know, that was a wine bottle back in the day. 
And they've been serving wine for like two, three days. And they've run out of wine, which if I'm not mistaken means they have dozens of these wine vessels sitting around, begging to be filled with wine. Jesus is looking for wine containers, and they have tons of empty wine containers. And does Jesus use them? No. He goes, no, 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 it's not what I'm filling up. Fill wine with wine containers? Everybody goes, okay. He goes, I need to fill something else. So he uses these water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. Because at this time, the way people related to each other and to God was by a system of cleanliness and uncleanliness. All sorts of things could make you unclean, from walking through the street, to actively sinning, to touching something you shouldn't touch, to having diseases or having certain professions. And if you're throwing a week-long wedding festival for Jewish people, one of the things you need is to provide a way for people to observe the Jewish purification rites so they can make themselves ceremonially clean before they can eat together. This is the current way of doing things. You must clean yourself up before you can participate in what your community and what God is doing. If you are unclean, you are excluded. If you are clean, you can be included. And it's on you to make sure you're clean before God and before your community. Jesus, by using the water purification jars to make wine, renders them useless to fit their actual purpose. Not only are they now full of wine and cannot be filled with water, he has ruined them. It's kind of important to keep your water cleaning jars clean. They're now no longer clean. Jesus is declaring before anyone that is there to witness that the old way of doing things, this system of cleaning yourself up, constantly bouncing back and forth between being clean and unclean is no longer a system that we need. It is no longer fit for purpose. Apparently, in this new thing Jesus is doing, you won't need to make yourself clean before God. What a radical statement to make in ancient Jerusalem. Jesus declares your entire system of religion, your entire way of life, your current understanding of God is no longer going to be the way we do things. Jesus says, I'm going to do something better. So if Jesus is doing a new thing, and the old thing is no longer going to be the way we do things, then we need a new thing. So what is the new thing that God is doing through Jesus? For that, we look at the wine. So Jesus takes the water. He turns it into wine. You have this beautiful, mysterious description. If you never really get the moment that it turns into wine, you notice that? Guy scoops water, and then they're like, and the water become wine, and that's it. But Jesus does it. Somehow water goes wine. So Jesus makes wine. But he makes, like, a lot of wine. We have six jars, John says, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Let's do some math. So if we average that to 25 gallons each, times six, we get 150 gallons. If you can't imagine what 150 gallons of wine looks like, you clearly never went to a frat party at USC. But in all seriousness, 150 gallons of wine equates to roughly 750 bottles of wine. 750 bottles of wine. 
of the highest quality. More wine than we could possibly drink of a quality that is surprising to the person who's an expert on wine. You notice that? The master of the ceremonies, the master of the feast, the guy whose job it was to make sure there was enough wine, by the way, he tastes the wine and goes, where did you get this? It's too good. What does Jesus do as his first sign? He starts something new, a new beginning for an old relationship, and his new thing is going to replace the old thing, and the old thing was about being clean and observing rules, and this new thing, what's this new thing about? This new thing is going to be full to the brim, overflowing, stocked up in abundance, and this new thing is going to be better than you expect it to be. It will surpass expectations. When wine is mentioned throughout the Old Testament, which would have been the only scriptures the attendees of this wedding would know, wine always represents the abundant joy and blessings of God. In Isaiah 25, the prophet Isaiah writes this, and you're going to hear familiar language. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of vintage wine, of rich food, of aged wine refined over time. And he will swallow up on this mountain the shadow that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth. The key signifier of the new thing Jesus is doing is wine, because the new thing will be marked by joy. Jesus makes sure that at this party, there will be no end to the celebration. The laughter and the love will continue because he's telling us that his kingdom is going to be a wedding feast where he is the master of ceremonies and he will make sure that there is enough for everyone. If I had all of the Bible mapped out on a pin board behind me, I could literally use red string and push pins and thread a line between this prophecy in Isaiah 25 to the wedding in Cana in John 2 to the vision of God's kingdom in Revelation 21. Sometimes reading the Bible is like solving the Da Vinci Code. The different passages unlock the meaning of earlier parts and different passages become lenses with which we understand what we did not understand before. We get to see that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, they are the same. The God that has been building this whole time towards this moment to this wedding feast in order to reveal that at its heart and at its core, the kingdom of God is like a party. Tim Keller interprets it like this. He writes that through this miracle, Jesus says, I am the Lord of the feast. In the end, I come to bring joy. That's the reason my calling card, my first miracle, is to set everyone laughing. Is this how we view God? The one who loves us so much, he throws a party to get everyone laughing and everyone dancing. 
Jesus is revealing what God has always been like, but we did not always know. But in this moment, this is where Jesus actually does something truly spectacular. Something even more extraordinary and unexpected. Because in the Old Testament, wine represents joy and blessing. But Jesus, later in his life, later in his ministry, equates wine with something else. His blood. Because this new thing he is doing still requires a means. The old system was there for a reason. The water jars, the need to become clean in order to be close to God, the need to have our lives healed and refreshed and fixed was there for a reason. Human beings are broken. Society is a mess. Our hearts are crooked and not always lined up with what is good, and there is a need to be healed. You can't just throw out the old system. You need to replace the old system. And by what means will this new thing be ushered in? By, by what means will the old system be replaced? By, by what means will we have closeness and intimacy with God? By what means will we be clean if we are no longer going to clean ourselves? By what means will God swallow up death, wipe away our tears, and release overflowing joy? The means will be his death. In Matthew 26, on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus holding a cup of wine, says, drink of this cup, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The purification waters at this wedding are replaced by wine, which is Jesus' blood, where we used to have a system by which we could become clean temporarily, we now have a man whose blood will purify us forever. You see, the wine at this wedding represents our joy and Jesus' suffering. It's where we get the paradox at the heart of this story, the swirling DNA strands of joy and suffering intermixed, which explains one of the oddest parts of the story. When Mary tells Jesus to help, and he says to her, my hour has not yet come, but then proceeds to help anyway. Like he says, no, my hour has not come, and then just does it. You see, throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus uses that phrase, his hour, or my hour, always to refer to his impending death. Which means at this wedding, when everyone else is celebrating, Jesus has his eyes set on his coming suffering. Because he knows, he knows that he will provide an infinite cup of joy for all people. But while everyone else is drinking from an infinite cup of joy, he will be drinking from a cup of suffering. The gateway by which we enter the eternal wedding feast is the cross of Jesus Christ. My favorite painter is a Flemish painter from the 16th and 17th century called Peter Paul Rubens. I think he paints the suffering of Jesus more beautifully than anybody else. 
one of the two great things about living in California is number one, we get in and out whenever we want, and number two, you can see this painting for free whenever you want because it's at the Getty. It's one of the greatest joys of my life was going to the Getty and realizing my favorite painting was on my doorstep. Here it is. It's called The Entombment, and it's Jesus taken down from the cross moments before being prepared for his burial. And in the background, you have Mary Magdalene holding Jesus' body as his mother. On one side, you have a woman who's known in Scripture as the other Mary, beautiful. And then you have John, who is the writer of the gospel in which the wedding feast in Cana occurs. Look at the different figures in this, particularly Jesus and John. Jesus entirely poured out. His face lifeless, his skin greenish blue, completely drained. His body heavy and limp, and his suffering complete. And next to him is John. In contrast to Jesus, his stature is upright. In contrast to Jesus, his cheeks are flush and full of life. And in contrast to Jesus, who is naked and emptied of his blood, John is clothed entirely in crimson. He is covered in red. The wedding in Cana and the miracle of water into wine is actually the miracle of a God willing to suffer so that we could have joy, a God willing to be emptied so that we could be filled, a God willing to be shamed so that we could be covered, a God willing to become sin so that we can become righteousness, a God willing to die so that we can live. If I could pair this painting with anything, be this phrase from the great preacher, Dr. Edmund Clowney, who said, Jesus sat amidst all the joy of the wedding feast sipping the coming sorrow so that today you and I who believe in him can sit amidst all this world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. Here's what I know. Some of us came here today struggling. A case of too many bad days. Too many plans that didn't work out. Too much effort expired for not enough results. Too many disappointments, too many hard lessons learned a day too late. Too much time slipped through wrinkled fingers, too many promises broken, too many expectations unmet, too many mistakes, too many regrets. For some of us, just too much. So have you come here today? knowing that the old way you've been living your life is no longer fit for purpose? Are you looking for something that will actually satisfy? Have you come here today feeling that God is not here? And if he is here, he must not care. Are you looking for a God who is close and will dwell with you? Have you come here today tired of cleaning yourself up, tired of wondering whether God is proud of you? Are you looking for comfort and peace and rest? Have you come here today tired, dry, 
empty, exhausted, sitting amidst a world of suffering, having barely crawled through the doors, not knowing how much longer you can hold on with tired fingers and chipped fingernails? Are you looking for a cup of joy, a vintaged wine of beauty and love and goodness and hope that will restore you and heal you and redeem you and sustain you and wipe the tears from your eyes? If you are, then allow me to reintroduce you to Jesus. The suffering king who died so that we can laugh a deep joyful laugh and dance a joyful dance and sing a joyful song at an eternal wedding party. Will you guys stand with me? Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.